So for the last few weeks um, uh, that I've been teaching, I've been teaching about the Brahma Viharas. And the Brahma Viharas are the four divine abodes or the four sublime states in Buddhism. And there's certain states of consciousness that are also practices that one can practice formally. And the, the four divine abodes are metta, or loving kindness, um, karuna, compassion, mudita, joy, and upekka, equanimity. And, these, and the, the uh, divine abodes, or the, the Brahma Viharas, are, um, are states of heart and mind that uh, arise naturally, that, that are inherent to who we are. They're part of who we are. Loving kindness is inherent to who and what we are. Compassion is inherent to who and what we are. Joy is inherent to who and what we are. Equanimity is inherent to who and what we are. When the, when the heart and mind is free, they, they just um, emerge naturally when they're called for. And, um, and so they're taught in Buddhism quite a bit. And, uh, and so we've gone through metta, loving kindness, and compassion, and joy. And uh, this week I want to talk about equanimity. And equanimity, the word is upekka. And upekka is taught in many different lists in Buddhism. The Brahma Viharas is one place that equanimity is taught. And meaning equanimity is highly um, appreciated and encouraged and pointed to in Buddhist teaching. And so um, it's in the four divine abodes. It's in the seven factors of awakening. It's the last factor of awakening. It's the um, ultimate factor that to be developed before awakening, because the seven factors all are, are the nourishment that leads to freedom. And then it's also one of the paramis or perfections of a Buddha is, is um, equanimity. And, um, and it's also in the deeper concentration states, there are certain kinds of jhana or absorption states that are characterized by the sense of being equanimous or totally in balance, meaning the heart and mind is in balance in a way that's very, um, it's gross, but it's, it's gross in its subtleness. In other words, everything gets so simple and quiet and in balance that there's this very profound equanimity that's very simple. And, um, in the in the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, there's a teaching called the Progress of Insight, and the Progress of Insight goes through the different phases and stages that happen right before awakening, right before the yeah the the stream entry, which is one of the ways awakening is described in Buddhism. And, uh, and uh, um, equanimity, there's a high, what's called a high stage of equanimity that lands before stream entry, before the movement to um, uh, awakening. And so upekka, upekka is the unwavering um, capacity to be present and balanced. It's, it's being here, and it's not that things don't happen, it's not that life is perfect or everything, but your state of heart and mind is in balance so that you can deal with whatever's here, whatever it might be, good or bad, right or wrong, happy or sad, there's some equanimity here. And the equanimity is often pointed to specifically, the upekka uh, is pointed at um, in terms of what's called the eight worldly winds. This is another kind of Buddhist metaphor that's often used in the teachings. And the eight worldly winds that you may have experienced, 
our gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. Right? Gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, gain and disrepute. And you hear the opposites in there of those two. Um, meaning e each of those pairs, right? That we've all gained things and lost things. Or we've all been praised and we've all been blamed for things. And we've all had pleasure at times and then we all have pain at times. And then we all get uplifted with what what they're calling fame. And then we've often been downgraded at times, disrepute. And those are, in Buddhism, they're called the four, uh, the eight worldly winds because those are normal. That's just part of human life, the ups and downs of human life. It's part of what we're all dealing with or gonna deal with or have dealt with, and it continues. And upekka, equanimity, is, um, it's not indifference, it's balance. It's not, um, uh, it's not, it's not being uncaring about things, but it's being balanced in relationship to things, to life, to the way things are, to ourselves, to other people, and to the, all the experiences that we will have in life. And the Buddha described the heart and mind filled with equanimity this way. He said, he said, it's a, uh, uh, Upeka, equanimity, is abundant, exalted, immeasurable. One is without hostility and without ill will, right? So it's, it's considered, a, in my language, a high state of mind and heart. And it's a certain kind of evenness of mind and heart and a certain kind of freedom, unshakable kind of freedom of mind and heart when, the, when equanimity is here. Sometimes it's talked about as a state of inner equipoise. Equipoise, it's, that's actually a word that the Venerable Analyo likes to use, equipoise. And so that, that can't be upset by the gain and loss. Doesn't mean we like the gain or we don't like, I mean, we, it doesn't mean we don't like the gain or that we see that we would rather not lose things, but we're in balance with the comings and goings that happen in human life, that happen for all of us. And you can even think about today, what, what was good or bad? What was right or wrong? What was gained or lost today, right? In your, in your feelings or in your relationship or in what you wanted to do or what you didn't want to do and had to do. Was there anything where you see that kind of paradox or that kind of complementary um, opposites? <clears throat> And so upekka or equanimity includes a certain kind of balance and what's called in Buddhism dispassion. And, and I, it took me a long time to like that term because I like passion. And passion's a good thing, but you can also have um, a dispassionate passion or you can have equanimous passion. And so you, it doesn't mean, oh, you have to get rid of anything, but you're not just stuck on one thing. There's more to you available than any one thing, and you have access to the totality of who and what you are, which in Buddhism is talked about as Buddha nature. And so the equanimity includes non-attachment or not clinging, a kind of even-mindedness or letting go or being even-keeled is a phrase that's used or serene, serene is a word that's used or level-headed, right? It's balanced in a way that we all know about because we've all had the experience of being balanced at times and then at times not being balanced.
And the word um, in Sanskrit, upeka, is upeksha, upeksha. And I like to mention that because it's interesting. Upa means to, uh, means over, and iksha means to look. And so in this way, the upeksha or upeka means to overlook, to look over. And it's, it means to see from the highest view. And so, and you know, have you ever had the experience where you're somewhere and you're, it's a new place and you go up a big hill or you go up a mountain and you look down and, you, and then you see where you are and you see the place, you see everything from a different perspective that gives you a bigger perspective, a broader perspective. And it's, oh, I see, it's like this. This is where I am now. And that's why I like this word upeksha as the equanimity because the being able to see the whole picture is something that brings equanimity for all of us. It puts things in perspective when we see the whole picture. Um, and so the word uh, upeka, which means equanimity, also the great root, great way equanimity is talked about is as balance, right? Being balanced, having both feet on the ground, right? And one foot might be in mud and one foot might be on the earth, but they're both on the ground, right? And so we can, we can stand there. And, and so what's being implied and what's important in balance is that it's part of the tradition of the middle way. And Buddhism is called the middle way. It was one of the key understandings of the Buddha when he woke up was the, the, that of the middle way. That's what he taught. The middle way between this and that, between right and wrong, between yes and no, between um, uh, here and there. That there was a middle way to be. That, and that's where he discovered freedom. Because I've told this story many times, but the Buddha was a, quite a, a hedonist for uh, the first part of his life. Total hedonist. He was a prince, and he, um, you know, there's one, the line that I always appreciated was he said, uh, you know, he, would, he had three different castles, and he would spend different seasons in different castles depending on the weather. And so he said during the winter season, he would spend three months in, the, in this one castle and he'd be entertained by minstrels without a single man among them, right? So he got entertained by women for three months. You know, he was a little bit of a hedonist at that time in his life. And then when he started on the spiritual path, he kind of renounced hedonism, he renounced pleasures, and he renounced the body, and he became an ascetic. And so he started uh, not eating, and not sleeping, and standing only, and, and, uh, and at some point he was only eating one grain of rice a day, and he almost died. And, and um, at some point, when he's almost dying, he has a memory um, of being in his father's garden, and um, being in a tree and having a certain experience, a natural meditation happened for him. And what happened was he was so, he realized that natural meditation was so pleasurable and it wasn't based on the usual kind of pleasure. It wasn't egoic pleasures. It was, it was a pleasure of a free mind and heart. And so he thought, oh, could that be the way to awakening instead of this, either the hedonism or the asceticism that he was following at that time. And so he, he, uh, he realized that was the way. So I think, first of all, I always love that. It's the Buddha having a memory about his childhood that changed his whole path to awakening. And then he followed, he trusted himself and he, um, he realized, oh, he needed to eat food, he needed to take care of his body, that that was part of the middle way. It wasn't just to indulge the body, but it wasn't to deny the body either. It was the middle way. And so he, and uh, a woman comes, 
uh, who's wandering around and sees this guy, looks like he's dying, and says, oh, do you need some milk? And she offers him some rice milk in India at that time, and he, he takes it, and he feels better. And he starts to come back and renew himself. And um, it's a beautiful story, but it's, it's, it's also, it's, it's the teaching of the middle way is based on that. And then, um, and, then the, and then the Buddha has his deep awakening after that, after he finds the middle way, after he finds the balance between life and death, really, or, or life and not life. And so, um, upeka also means to see, it colloquially in India, it meant to see with patience, to see with patience. So there's some kind of presence here that we can see from when there's equanimity. It's like, oh, we're here. What, whatever's happening, good or bad, right or wrong, like or not like, happy or sad, we're here. And then our intelligence and our creativity and our heartfulness can respond to reality whether we like it or not, whether it's right or wrong or good or bad. And so that originally it meant to see with patience and also to seeing with understanding, with some kind of fullness. And what I found out, I didn't know this, but I really like this, uh, the word equanimity um, in originally is tatra maja tata, tatra maja tata. And uh, it, the, the different parts of that word, tatra meaning there, refers to all these things, and maja means middle, and tata means to stand or to pose in the middle of all these things. And so the word means to stand in the middle of all of this to stand in the middle of our lives, to stand in the middle of our situation, whatever our situation is, to be here. And it's pointing at the presence that's needed for our intelligence and our heartfulness and our creativity to come forward to respond to human life, which is, as I've said many times, human life, life has its pluses and minuses, and that's part of the deal. That's just part of the deal, as far as I can tell. And so the teachings constantly, uh, excuse me, life moves constantly or continually between contrasts of praise and blame or gain and loss or pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute or the eight winds. And our heart responds to these different winds with happiness or sadness or delight or despair, or disappointment, or satisfaction, or hope, or fear. And we don't stop our hearts from having responses, but that's not all of who and what we are. There's our presence and our wakefulness that is aware of both the eight winds and, our, and the ways our heart may respond to the eight winds. And so equanimity is considered to be the pinnacle of the four divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's, it's the high point in a certain way. And this is, uh, I read a quote from my friend Sharon Salzberg. Here I'll tell you how I got, I, I was calling somebody about teaching a day long here in the fall and at uh, SFI. And, and I called him and I, I couldn't get him, but I left the message. And then I called again because I wanted to add to my message. And this time he picked up and he said, what, who's this? Because he thought, oh, somebody. And I said, it's Eugene. He said, I said, where are you? It says, Orrin Sofer. And uh, he, I, he said, oh, I'm at IMS. I'm teaching with Mark Coleman and Sharon Salzberg. And it's actually a Brahma Vihara retreat. I said, great. I, and anyhow, so he said, I said, do you have any good quotes? I'm teaching about equanimity tonight. And he said, sure, I'll send you one. He sent me this. So I'll give, this is coming from IMS today. 
this is for you guys, for all of us. This is actually Sharon Salzberg talking about uh, um, life and balance. And she said, um, um, the eight winds are the very nature of life, right? No one in the world experiences only pleasure and no pain. No one in the world only experiences pleasure and no pain. No one experiences only gain and no loss. When we open to this truth, we discover that there is no need to hold on or to push away. Rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, we can find a sense of security in being able to meet what is actually happening. Right? Our security is not found, found in holding out or controlling reality, but in seeing, oh, we can deal with whatever happens. We can meet with whatever happens, you know, gain or loss, pleasure or pain, you know, fame or disrepute. We can deal with it. <clears throat> and of course, the person I love to quote about that is always Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher who escaped from when the Chinese took over um, Tibet in 1948 or 49, and uh, he escaped over the Himalayas and then ended up in, uh, I believe it was Oxford University in England, and was quite brilliant, and then started many, many um, Dharma centers in the West, in America, and he's the first person who had Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg teach a Vipassana retreat at his center. And he started the Vipassana, the modern Vipassana scene in that way. And he always said, everything is workable. Even though he'd lost everything. He'd lost his whole life and his country and many of his people. He said, everything is workable. And I always appreciated that about Trungpa. Because he knew something. He, he really knew something. And so, but I'm going to continue Sharon. She says, uh, when we open to this truth, we discover there is no need to hold on or push away. Rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, we find a sense of security my word, presence, in being able to meet with what is actually happening. This is allowing for the mystery of things. This is allowing for the mystery of things. Not judging, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can receive what is happening, whatever it is. This acceptance is the source of our safety and confidence. And so this is part of the equanimity that's part of the practice whenever we sit. Because really, we don't know what's going to happen any time we sit. We, we don't have control over what will happen when we sit. And of course, I don't have to say this, but we all know we don't have control about what happens in life. We have a little bit of input. We have a little bit of... we can help things out or guide things or direct things and make intentions and fulfill a lot of things, but we're not in control. So <clears throat> when I said equanimity is the pinnacle of the four Brahma Viharas, um, Bhikkhu Bodhisattu Pekka, the last of the Brahma Viharas, does not override or negate the preceding three, but perfects and consummates them. And what, what he means, it's sometimes called that equanimity is talked about as the wisdom of the heart. The wisdom of the heart. And it's paradoxical because we don't think of the heart that way. If I talk about loving kindness or compassion or joy, people, that makes sense with the heart. But equanimity is not conventionally, we don't think of equanimity as part of the heart. And I think it's beautiful to think of it as the wisdom of the heart, the waking up of the heart, which is um, 
which is not separate from the other components of, of loving kindness and compassion and joy. Because loving kindness and compassion and joy, as it's talked about in the Brahma Viharas, are not based on our preferences or not based on just what we like. It's based on clearly seeing the way things are, the way reality is. And when there's equanimity in our loving kindness, then it allows for our wish for happiness for ourselves and others, excuse me, without being lost in craving and attachment or having to get a certain result we can still wish for happiness for ourselves or others, and we're not in control about what happens. Or with compassion, equanimity brings a kind of unwavering courage that allows us to really see our own pain or other people's pain and to not be caught in our reactions. And especially in working with uh, seeing other people's pain because that's often very hard for people. Um, meaning people think, sometimes people think to be compassionate means, oh, I have to feel that like they feel. And that's, a, that's not exactly a Buddhist compassion. That's a codependent compassion. And that's a more modern version of compassion that is kind of a popular psychological compassion that we're supposed to feel as bad as somebody and that means we're compassionate. No, it means we see the suffering and it touches us and it touches our heart, but it doesn't mean we have to feel bad about ourselves at all or like, oh, I have too much or something because they're having a hard time. It's not the comparing mind. Um, T.S. Eliot and his poem, uh, he talked about this kind of uh, equanimity and compassion. He said, teach us to care, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. That's part of the paradox of the Dharma. Teach us to care and not to care, both, at the same time. And so, and equanimity in mudita means being able to feel the joy and have joy for other people's good fortune and the, the good things that happen for people without having envy or jealousy about it. <clears throat> and so you're hearing a little of the paradoxical nature of equanimity because it works with both sides of experience, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, you know, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, right? It works with both sides of things. It's paradoxical in that way. And equanimity is neither attachment nor detachment. It's not detachment, it's non, it's based on non-attachment, not de, we're not pushing anything away, we're just not attached to it. That our, that our, um, that equanimity is not an emotion like our usual emotions, it's not based on preference. Sometimes I watch my own equanimity grow as a father. And it's been really interesting to watch that happen. Because, <clears throat> you know, when your children are real small, you really like, you just, you have to take care of them so that they survive when they're babies. I mean, that just has to happen. And, and you care about this young soul who's in a body. Right? Who's, you know, related to you now when they emerge or come out. And then, and then watching them grow up and mature and you want to do everything so that they can grow up and mature and be happy and do what they want and follow their heart and you want to support them in whatever's needed so that they can really become themselves in a very full way. And for me, what's been interesting is watching the equanimity is now I have a grown daughter and um, um, watching the letting go, 
of being dad because mostly my daughter doesn't need dad so much anymore. It's just not, you know, she did for a while, you know, and every once in a while she still does, but it's rare. And it's so interesting to let go of being a dad and be equanimous with it because it's the way things are. And, and the real problem would be is if I wasn't equanimous with it, then it would be like, you know, I know my daughter well enough, she'll tell me if I'm too, you know, overly parental with her because she doesn't need, she's an adult. And, you know, it's like all of you, do you want your parents telling you what to do? Right? I mean, you might want your parents, but <laughs> probably not. You know, and but you know, and so that's that's part of being a parent at a certain time is letting go of that because you want to stay balanced with reality. And reality is, your child is not a child, but is an adult at a certain point. And funny, I have traded phone calls with my daughter in the last day. A little because I heard she had a hard time with something, and so I don't I don't tell her what to do, but sometimes I know that it's still good for her to hear that I'm around and I love her, and you know I'm in the picture somewhere in the in the way background. But it's true, you raise a child, you let them go, and you still love them completely. There's no change in the love. It's totally there. <clears throat> so the wisdom of uh, equanimity is part of the wisdom of a certain kind of equality that happens, of seeing self and others equally, of, of uh, having a certain kind of balance of heart and mind. And the, there was a, a Vedic uh, teacher uh, in the last century, uh, Satchidananda, and uh, at least for me, who I don't, I don't know him well, and I didn't know him at all, and, but there was always this poster of somebody surfing um, in, a, in like a yoga pose, you know, with, with one foot on the surfboard and the other foot up at their side or something, or... And, and underneath was a quote from Satchidananda, and it said, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And then it said, meditate. And that's really what part of what we're doing here is learning how to balance. Find balance, find the balance that is already sitting in your seat. It's recognizing it and encouraging it and nourishing it and letting it mature into a very full balance. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful quality of heart and mind. And as I said paradoxically, here's one of the quotes I like that I, you can hear the balance. This is from Sri Nisargadatta, who is one of Jack Cornfield's teacher, not a Buddhist teacher, but great, a great being. If you don't know who he is, he's good to check out Sri Nisargadatta. He said, wisdom tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am everything. Love tells me I am, oh, excuse me. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. <laughs> That's more accurate. <laughs> Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Right? Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. That's a certain kind of balance, a very deep balance and understanding. <clears throat> so I'll say, oh, a couple more things. Too much talk from Eugene tonight. No, I'm just going to end here. There are a lot of different um, uh, phrases you can use if you're doing formal equanimity practice. Uh, here, I'll just tell you a few of the phrases. All beings are the owners of their karma, their happiness, um, uh, or unhappiness. Their happiness is um, dependent on their, their happiness or unhappiness is dependent on their actions, not upon my wishes for that. 
or one has the wish, may we all accept things as they are, or may we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. Um, and really what I'm going to do is end with a little um, Tibetan prayer. Um, actually, I'll, I'll end after we do any questions or comments. I'll say one thing from Jack Cornfield and Christina Feldman, who said, the greatest art in spiritual life is finding balance. The greatest art in spiritual life is finding balance. The entire teachings of the Buddha are summed up in his encouragement to find and travel the middle path. To seek neither the extremes of mortification and aversion for life, nor the extreme of indulgence, losing oneself in pleasure-seeking. The balance between those two is the path of awakening and freedom. The path of balance is to be with what is true in life and to love that, to be committed to the truth on every level of our being. So we have a few minutes for comments, questions, your thoughts. We'd like to stop and see what did you think, anything make sense or bring up any questions or what you liked or didn't like or want to know more about or less about or please and just turn the stand up and then turn the mic to you and say your name yeah and just stand up stand up and fully yeah and, and no pull the mic up it'll it'll fit you I can't just hide in my chair no no you can't hide in your chair it's one of the better things it's a um, Hi, and your name? Corinne. Corinne. Hi, Corinne. Hi. Um, so my question is about uh, that T.S. Eliot quote that you chose, uh -huh. and I guess I was struck by it because I just couldn't quite wrap my head around yeah. why we should cultivate not caring and right. what you meant by that. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Great question. Teach us to care and not to care because... A little bit from what I said before about the compassion, because sometimes people care too much. There's a kind of codependent caring. And so it's important to care and also to know about the freedom from anything. And that's a paradox we're not used to, right? And so here, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, one of the things that happened for me, and this wasn't anything I tried to do, but it happened after a long time and, you know, of practice. And at a certain point, I started to not care about things. And I started to not care about things I cared about. And I didn't know what the hell to do with it. I couldn't, I wouldn't believe me, I talked to teachers about it and people, I would say, you know, and I really, if I want to, I'll be totally honest, like, you know, at a certain point I thought, okay, I don't care about Buddhism anymore. And, but I do care about Buddhism. It's great. I love Buddhism. But I also don't care about Buddhism. And I didn't know how to reconcile that in myself for quite a while. And then I realized that both are true. I care and I don't care. And they're both true. And finding relaxing with that has been very freeing for me. And I can't explain that. I can't say, oh, here's what I did and this is why I care and I don't care. Life happened in many ways and that happened for me after, you know, 25 years of practice. And it's just was the weirdest thing because I couldn't reconcile it with how I knew myself because I've been a very passionate person in my life for what I cared about, whether it was, you know, I did theater in New York or I was a musician for many years and it was just my passion for years. And then spirituality and Buddhism and practice and I go on retreats and, and I still love to go on retreats, but, but I don't care about Buddhism. There's some part of me that doesn't care. And that part, it's very free. And at the same time, I totally care about Buddhism. So I hope that's a little bit helpful. It's paradoxical to me, but it's true. So, good question. I've only been to Spirit Walk 
wait, 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 you gotta come up to the mic. Mm -hmm. And here. And please say your name. My name's Barry. Hey Barry. And I've only been to Spirit Walk Rock once, but um, there was a traveling monk there once and he said something that stuck with me. He said the Buddha would not bat an eyelash at the death of Buddhism. <laughs> That's so what do you wait, 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 Barry. What what do you make of that? What? What do you make of that? It's what? That's complete for me. Okay, great. So, and also, earlier tonight, I, I, I came here because somebody told me about you, and they said you take questions. And yeah. So I thought it occurred to me early this evening, um, I thought it occurred to me that, uh, well, there aren't any questions. There's only answers, and the only answer is this is it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> So it's great to have uh, uh, an answer that negates your question. <laughs> but it's also great to have questions that negate an answer that you have, too. Paradox is really beautiful both ways. And so um, it's easy to say that. What's, what's really important, and I hope for you, you know this, is to live it and then see what happens with the actuality of it. Because that for all of us, that's the cutting edge, is living the Dharma. Um, and I love what you said from the Buddhist, who said, yeah, Buddha, Buddha wouldn't blink an eye uh, if Buddhism was gone. Because remember, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. <laughs> he, was, he, he, he happened before there was Buddhism. Right, which I always appreciated about uh, the Buddha. He just followed his heart in a very full way, and he wanted to wake up, and he woke up. Please. Pull it to your, so it's right at your mouth. Is where, Yeah, great. Uh, I'm Laurel. And I really appreciate all that you've said tonight on equanimity. Um, but I'm feeling some stress ever since you said that you gave a talk on joy. Uh -huh. I missed it. Oh. <laughs> would you consider, and I'd like more joy, <laughs> um, would you consider just offering a few words of summary on what I missed about you? Uh, okay, joy. Um. Uh, I would consider, let's see if I can. <laughs> um, um, you know, the word joy, it's uh, mudita, and it's both joy in the, in the goodness of others and the good fortune of others, and also in one's own good fortune, and really taking joy or delight or a certain kind of joyful happiness in life, and life in all its forms. I mean, you could look around the room and you could see something good in each person here. And meaning, you, and all you have to do is look, it's already here. And you could see it, and especially as when we get here, when we're really present and our consciousness starts to relax and open, oh, you can see the goodness of human beings. It's, it's just, there's good hearts there. Really, there's nobody here who doesn't come without a good heart. And it doesn't mean you're perfect or I would like you all the time, but, but still, one can see the goodness of people and the, the care of people and the, um, and the aspirations of people here to wake up. And, and just that can bring joy. Right? So it can be a kind of sublime joy that is part of the Brahma-viharas that I find very beautiful and, and sometimes surprising. You know, I have my own odd experience of enjoying people who I don't even know. And, you know, sometimes I don't even like, but I can still enjoy them. I 
Okay, you're welcome. Please. Um, hi, I'm Nancy. I have a, it's the care and care and not caring, so I want to go back to that a little bit. Okay. Um, and I, I think it's more of a discernment, um, but I'm not sure. Go ahead. Um, and that, I like the, what rings true to me is the um, not being codependent, so not um, taking on the suffering of somebody else. Right. Um, you know, that's not useful. Um, and, but I also think it's really important if there is suffering that we feel it. Uh -huh. um, not to feel the other person's <coughs> suffering or to feel guilty that we have something that somebody doesn't, but to, to still have an open heart and to feel that. Uh -huh. well, not to get you know, bogged down by it. Right. So well, well, what do you mean by feel? Um, so if, if um, what I mean by feel is if there is sadness, to feel a little bit of sadness, but not the other person's sadness, to, to have a reaction to homelessness, to have a reaction to right. wrongdoing, right. but not to get um, right. caught up in it. Right. So I don't, so I think that might be different from caring and not caring, I'm not sure. Well, that, that's my question. No, I, I think that's a good way to start thinking about it, and let's see as you explore it, but it's, it's I just I ask about feeling because um, feeling is usually related to emo emotions, right? And the way one of the ways I understand what this means is that when I say um, to care, it means oh, we're touched by things, we're touched by the suffering and the difficulties that are everywhere and in this world and homelessness or for all the peoples where there are countries at war or where there's prejudice or racism or sexism or any of the, right, that we're touched by it and that we let ourselves be touched by it. And we also know the place in us that is uh, where, where there is balance, even though we let ourselves be fully touched by things that are difficult. So that's a little how I think of it, and is that helpful? Yeah, that, that's helpful. Okay, great, great. Yeah, because being touched also will stimulate our response, and that's a really important part of practicing in real life, is it's not just abstract suffering. It, suffering needs response, help in different ways, and. If we're not the person suffering, sometimes we can really help, or we can at least offer our kindness and care to the person who is suffering. And sometimes we can't do anything. And that becomes part of our own dukkha in a certain way, when we can't help at all. But then we can still find our own balance, or our balance is part of who and what we are at that point. So maybe that's a good place for us to stop. Let's sit for a minute. And I'd like to end with this um, Tibetan prayer. Um, and I'll say it, and then you can repeat it out loud um, with, you know, with me when I, I'll say it a second, call and response. And it's a Tibetan prayer about um, the Brahma Viharas, basically that ends with equanimity. So it's, <clears throat> and this is our wish that we have, that we've got to have the good fortune to be here tonight, that we have the time and place and teachings to learn how to be, to wake up, to become mature human beings. And we wish this for all beings, that we wish all beings to be happy and free and the Tibetan prayer is, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. 
May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all know the sacred happiness that is sorrowless. May all know the sacred happiness that is sorrowless. And live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, knowing the quality of all that is. And I'll say, I'll say it again. And live in equanimity. I'll say it part by part. And live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion. And live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, knowing the quality of all that is. Knowing the quality of all that is. May all beings, may we, may all of us, everybody here, everybody in San Francisco, California, United States, Northern Hemisphere, in the, all the continents of this earth, all the beings of this earth, in the waters and seas and air and lands, may all beings in every world wake up and realize their Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Good to be here with you. I'll see you again in two weeks. Have a good time with Radha next week. And if you can spend a few minutes to help clean up, we appreciate the help. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.